Tired of feeling foggy, having trouble remembering the little things, or simply looking for a way to keep your brain working at its best? Introducing Neurovello from Primrose Leaf, a perfect herbal combo to keep an active mind. Neurovello boosts memory, clears out brain fog, slows down cognitive decline, supports clearer thinking, and fuels focus. Contact Primrose Leaf today to find out more. Call 844-376-0007 or visit primroseleaf.com. Say goodbye to brain fog and say hello to Neurovello. My guest today is Mary Lou Falcone, author of the book, I Didn't See It Coming, Scenes of Love, Loss, and Louis Body Dementia. Now, in her memoir, Mary Lou takes readers on a freeing journey of caregiving that is filled with hope, laughter, and tears, making stops along the way for music, romance, and surprises. Now, written to inspire and give hope, Mary Lou unflinchingly shares in detail of her late husband's struggle with LBD, providing informative, compassionate, and inspiring insights into dementia. Now, Mary Lou Falcone is an internationally known classical music publicist and strategist who for 50 years has helped guide the careers of celebrated artists from Van Cliburn to James Taylor and advised many institutions, including Carnegie Hall and symphonies and orchestras from L.A. to Chicago to New York, as well as the Vienna Philharmonic. Now, I would like to shine a light on Mary Lou's late husband, Nicholas Nicky Zan. He is the inspiration for her book. He was a popular 1950s rock and roll musician who became a world-renowned cartoonist, illustrator, and painter. His work hangs in the permanent collection of London's Victoria and Albert Museum, and the illustrations featured throughout her book come from his best-selling fortune-telling card game, The Answer Deck. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our very esteemed guest today, Mary Lou Falcone, to the show. Welcome, Mary Lou. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction and also for the introduction of Nikki. <laughs> well, you are, that that's okay. Uh, we know we know how the virtual goes when it comes to the phone ringing and things of that sort. But all good. But uh, absolutely, when it comes to Nikki, I was you know I read your book uh, from cover to cover actually, and just diving into not only your story but his story. And what an interweaving life that you have led. But I have to ask you, you know, not only did I find your book very enlightening, uh, early on in your life, you used music to help safely express your emotions. How did that prepare you later on to be a caregiver to your husband, Nikki? Well, it was very interesting. You know, in families in the 1950s, you didn't talk about what was happening at home to anyone. It was all very private and, and kept within the family. And so emotionally, it was very hard to, to express, except I discovered that I had a thing called a voice, as in a singing voice. And through that, I was able to, to give everything to the music. And in doing that, I, I would notice that adults, I was like nine or 10 years old, adults would sit and weep. And I thought, this is kind of interesting that, that somehow I'm communicating, but not through words, through song. And so as life went on, I discovered that it also got me into college. It got me into the Curtis Institute of Music because I could sing. And they were an all scholarship school and I needed a scholarship. So I was a lucky person. I got in, I was well-educated thanks to the Curtis Institute and it prepared me for life. But so did my, my early childhood with my dad. When I was 10 years old, he had a massive stroke. 
and he never spoke again for the rest of his life. He was 37 when it happened. He was 64 when he died. That's a lot of years not to have any ability to speak, but still have all your brain power intact. And so it is not a big surprise that communication became a lifeline for me, first through singing and then discovering that I was probably a better speaker than I was a singer, in my opinion, and therefore I could speak about the careers of other people and did and opened a public relations company, which is 50 years old, actually, this month. Wow. Now, you know, your story of your father, you became, what, a caregiver at the age of, what, 11? At 10. A caregiver at age 10. Uh, basically, I, I took care of the household. I took care of my dad and my two younger siblings. My mother was a remarkable woman. And she went and held down three jobs. She, uh, by day, worked in a factory. On weekends, she worked in a bakery. And several nights a week, she babysat for wealthy families that they used, my parents used to socialize with. So her hands were full. My, you know, nobody told me I had to do any of this. As a child, you just sort of intuitively, I guess you have a choice. You can bury your head or you can just take the challenge. Nobody asked me to do it. It just happened. And so I became the, the person in the household who again took care of my dad, my siblings, got the dinner started, you know, all of those good things. But it was normal for me because that's what I did. And well, so being a like, caregiver, I mean, being, let's say being a caregiver at the age of 10, um, and probably until you left home to go to college. Um, you were all, so you got an early education as being a caregiver. Um, how much different was it being 10 years old and being a caregiver and then decades later being a caregiver to Nikki? I learned so much as a 10 year old caregiver. It, it was really interesting that, that, um, Patience was not a strong suit as a 10-year-old, uh, feeling that I could conquer everything because I had that kind of a will, and I could make my dad speak. And when the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, which is where Christopher Reeve went, interestingly enough, you know, when he had his terrible accident, and it was in the next town from our town. So my dad went to Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, and he walked again, which was remarkable, and he never got the use of his right hand again, which was a shame. But the speech, you know, in those days, they didn't realize that it was a, a situation where the, um, the brain had been actually damaged on both sides. Because as you know, when, when the damage happens, there is an alternate part of the brain that can often pick up and, and be rehabilitated. In this case, they misdiagnosed my dad. And it was a small town. There was a surplus doctor on. It wasn't his fault. He just never thought a 37-year-old could be having a massive stroke. And that's what was happening. And so they treated him with salt tablets for dehydration, which you can only imagine the damage that that did. And so Kessler didn't know that he couldn't ever speak. The doctors didn't know in those days that he could ever speak. And when the insurance money ran out, the Institute said, 
you have a very bright now 11 year old, she can work with you daily, which in hindsight should have never happened. A child should not be working in that way with a parent. But, you know, I was a child who thought, I can do this, I can help my dad. And it would, you know, I would, I would insist and insist and my dad would get really frustrated and break down into tears. And to this day, that chokes me up because it's not something I'm proud of. But I was a child who thought I could do it. And the truth was, I couldn't. So as an adult, bringing it fast forward to caregiving when I was in my 70s, for my husband, my beloved husband, Nikki Zan, that was a very different experience. Now I employed patience. I was able to just love unconditionally and give what he needed, no matter what that was, I was there. And when I got frustrated, I would take myself into another part of our home and I would scream the F word into a pillow and then inhale lavender sachet to calm down and then go back with a cheery open countenance. Well, I read that portion in your book and I really sat there to um, kind of ponder that for a moment. And you even described that you can't even use any other words to just no. get the frustration out. And I thought, you know what? There's a whole lot of truth to that. And, and like you said, don't let the, uh, you know, don't let the one you're caring for hear you or see you just really go behind the closed doors and just let it out. Because I think a lot of caregivers, they hold so much in that it's really damaging to their own health and their own mental oh, health. Absolutely. As a caregiver, you must take care of yourself. And the other message that I try to get across is you're not alone. You feel alone so much of the time because people will abandon you. There are people who will stick by you. You have to forgive those who abandon you because they just can't do it. And for those who stick by you, you bless them. But you have to take the, the initiative in all of this. And you must take care of yourself because yeah. nobody else is going to do it. Amen to that. Well, you met Nikki in 1973. You became a couple in 1983. But then you married in 2017. Why did you wait so long to get married? <laughs> that was my doing. Uh, Nikki had asked me. I was Nikki's third wife. <clears throat> and three is the charm, I guess. And so we were together a total of 37 years. As you said, the first 10 years we were friends, and then for 34 of those years, we were a couple. And Nikki asked me repeatedly to marry him during that, that period. And I would say, why are we going to spoil something perfect with a piece of paper? I've seen too many instances where the paper kind of binds and things change. That was my interpretation. Right or wrong, that's the way I felt. And so I, I would say, no, we don't need that. We don't need that. And then in 2017, when things started to go pretty wrong, I noticed at the end of 2016, we were in Vienna, for instance, and all of a sudden, Nikki, uh, a couple of things happened. He was, he was confused. He was tired. I thought it was the fatigue jet lag. And one night we were supposed to go to a restaurant with friends. 
and we were all coming from different directions. And Nikki knew the restaurant. We'd eaten there many, many times. It was a block and a half from where we were staying. An hour passed and no Nikki. I got very frightened and I excused myself from our friends and I went out towards St. Stephen's Cathedral on the main square in Vienna. And, you know, sometimes God is with you or some other power is with you. And coming toward me was Nikki. It was like a miracle. It had happened once before in Japan on another occasion where we had been in different parts of Japan, not knowing the streets and found each other just miraculously. But that wasn't a, a, a threatening situation. This was. And so when I walked up to Nikki, you know, I said, where have you been? And the look in his eye was just frightening. He was frightened. And he said to me, you didn't write down the address. And instinct just kicked in. I took a deep breath and I said, you, Nikki, you're so right. You are so right. I, it was my bad. I should have written down the address. I didn't do it. Please forgive me. And let's go to the restaurant, which we did. And everybody was relieved to see him. He calmed down. Later in that visit, he actually blacked out. On New Year's Eve, we were at a party and, and leaving the hotel. And he blacked out on the steps. I thought he had just tripped. He hasn't. He completely blacked out and came to. And that was frightening to find out later. When we got back to New York, uh, we had had an incident. We went on to Paris, actually, from Vienna, and we found that one night he was he woke up with sweats and feeling feeling uh, cold at the same time and hot and you know all of those things and heaviness in his chest. And little did we know he had had a heart attack, pretty severe heart attack. But next morning he was fine, so thought nothing of it. Came back, he had his six month checkup, which he always did. He was very diligent about his health. And the doctor, and he said to the doctor, you had me take something called a calcium score test six months ago, but you never told me what the result was. So doc, what, what's up, what gives? The doctor looked at the chart and he turned white. And he said, oh my gosh, this is, this is out of sight in terms of the numbers. You need to get to a cardiologist now. He'd send him for a stress test. They wouldn't let him get on the treadmill. They had to do the injection type of, of, of um, uh, testing. And they found that they called and said he had had a very severe heart attack somewhere along the line. They couldn't tell us when, but I knew when it was. And that um, he needed to see a cardiologist. He did. The cardiologist sent him in for an angiogram. But before that happened, and I'm going back to your direct question about marriage, before that happened, a week before that happened, I said to Nikki, you know, I think it's time to get married. Because I had a bad feeling, but I didn't say that. And Nikki looked at me and he said, why now? You've said no repeated times. What's your hurry? I said, you know, we're not getting any younger. We love each other passionately. I think it would be a really good idea so we can protect each other. And so we went to City Hall, got the license, and on the 13th of February in 2017, we were married. On the 14th, we went into the hospital, as I'm fond of saying, doesn't everybody check their heart on Valentine's Day? So we went in for the angiogram, and it was taking a long time, so I thought, oh, goody, goody, it's stents. That's fine. 
because they had told me that it was taking longer, it's then fine. And then they came out and said, his arteries were clogged 100%, 99%, 80%, and 50%. And they were going to send us home so that we could make a proper date for open heart surgery. <laughs> I said, sorry, folks, I am not budging. I think you should get your, your head surgeon in here to look at these stats because this is not good. And I'm afraid to go home. I didn't say more than that, just I'm just not budging. And they got the message. And the head surgeon looked at the, the numbers and he said, oh, uh, we're admitting him now. And tomorrow morning, we're doing the open heart surgery. As it turned out, the surgery was brutal. Nikki told me that he actually saw the white light, was going toward it, was leaving very peacefully, and then said to himself under anesthesia, I've only been married to Mary Lou for two days. I can't leave her quite yet. And that quite yet turned out to be prophetic. And, indeed. Well, can you can you paint us, and, I'm, and, and no pun intended, but, you know, uh, in the honor of Nikki, I think paint is a great word, but can yes. you paint us a picture as to who Nikki Zan was as a man? Nikki Zan was, um, if you know the actor Alain Delon, Nikki looked like Delon. He was a very handsome dude. And Nikki, Nikki was a generous person, a generous spirit. Uh, when he died, the hundreds of notes that I got all said basically the same thing. He always made us feel so special with his loving and his kindness. And that's who Nikki Zan was. He also was a devil. I mean, he was, he was one of the funniest people on the planet, never at anybody's expense, but clever, 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 always. And made people happy. People loved to have Nikki in the room because you always felt better when Nikki was in the room. He was a major talent, as you as you prefaced in, in the introduction. He was a rocker in the 50s, on the same stages with Patsy Cline, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash. So he was a for real. He wasn't the basement kid who did the rock and roll. He was on the road at age 14. His parents allowed him to go on the road. I think they figured out they couldn't stop him, so they might as well join him. And uh, he always said, you know, his childhood was like Summerhill. You know, everything went. He could do anything he wanted and did. But the other side of Nikki was a very serious side. And that serious side was a love of books. He adored the library. And in Little Neck, where he grew up, he couldn't go to the library because his pals would come in and they'd be disruptive. And he, he didn't like that. That wasn't respectful. So he went over to Great Neck, next town, and he would ride his bike over and he registered at the library with a false address and under the name of Jeffrey Greenberg. Where the name came from, who knows? But the librarian would say, oh, Jeffrey, it's so nice to see you and what books are you reading today? And he would live in the library reading books. He just loved it. So that, that was the childhood, Nikki. The adult Nikki then at age 21 decided enough of this rock and roll, I've had it. He was on the American Bandstand with Dick Clark and all that good stuff. He had a great run as a rocker, but art was always his passion. 
And so going from making thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year, he went in his first year as an artist making, I think it was $45. But he was happy. He was very happy. And he married his first wife. And that was, that was annulled because it was a very short marriage. And then about five, six, seven years later, he married his second wife, another beautiful, beautiful artist and lovely human being who's still a friend of mine. And that marriage lasted for 15 years. And then we got together. So Nikki was, Nikki was passionate about everything he, he did. He was, I'm smiling because he was passionate about me and I about him. And it's a real love story. And people have categorized this book as a love story. And it is. It is. It, it, it's a beautiful love story. You know, between you and Nikki, I enjoyed the whole uh, journey of the courtship. Uh, very interesting, to say the least. But, uh-huh. <laughs> but, and, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, you will, you know, even though she focuses within this book on Lewy body disease, there are places in this book which you will find very endearing, very loving. You will laugh. Uh, your eyebrows may raise a bit, but it is a great story from, from the beginning to the end. But Mary Lou, when Nikki was diagnosed with Lewy body uh, dementia, it was actually a miracle that his diagnosis was confirmed on the first try, but that's extremely unusual, isn't it? It is very unusual. We had a general uh, practitioner, general doctor, who, uh, we switched to to a new doctor after a year and a half of, of Nikki having the open heart surgery, then kept losing weight and was having hallucinations, which I didn't know until later. And we switched doctors. Our new doctor was a, uh, the first doctor was a wonderful man, but the second doctor was a younger, wonderful man and very compassionate. And I said to him along the way, about four or five months into our relationship with him, I said, you know, I really think you should do a baseline MRI. I think it's important. And he looked at me and said, well, you know, Nikki's 73 and maybe it's, it's just age. And I said, I don't think so. He said, well, let me watch for a month, which he did. Bless his heart, he did watch. And at the end of that month, he came back to me and he said, I think you're right. I do think we need to do a baseline MRI. And so in January of 2019, we did a baseline MRI. And it came back with a phrase that I positively hate, which is age-appropriate deterioration. You know, that's nonsense in, in my book. It is nonsense. Because, right? Because MRIs will show you if you've had a stroke or many strokes, but it won't show you much else. And so I looked at our doctor and I said, okay, what next? This isn't good enough. And he said, I agree with you. And he was part of the Sinai unit, Mount Sinai, and he sent us to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital for a neurologist. And I said, you know, why are you sending us out of network? You guys never do that. You always stay within your own family. And he said, because the best neurologist I know is there. Now, he didn't say the best neurologist for Lewy body dementia. He just said the best neurologist. Subsequently, I found out that he, our doctor, had a sister who had LBD and he knew what he was, he was seeing, but he sent us to her neurologist 
to confirm it. Actually, they don't confirm, they, they test to, to um, establish that it probably is. It, they, confirmation is not something that they, they use. I would actually medical. call that a divine connection. Yeah, I, I think so. And the neurologist that we went to, we, we did the cognitive test. I say we because, you know, this is, this is we. One doesn't go through this alone. One goes through this as a couple. And so we did the cognitive test. And Nikki, being a jokester, would, would say things like they pointed to a, a, a lion and said, you know, and what is this? And Nikki said, oh, that's easy. That's Mary Lou. And they look at him like, oh. and I said, no, no, you have to understand, I'm a Leo. That's what he's referring to. And then I looked at Nikki and said, would you please stop fooling around and just focus on this test? They finished the test, they watched him walk, and the neurologist said, this is Lewy body dementia with Parkinsonian aspects. But just to um, do a little bit more research, we're going to do a REM sleep test because Lewy body with it comes REM sleep disorder. And that's when you act out your dreams. Most of us sleep and we, we think we're running down a hill, but our legs aren't moving. With REM sleep disorder, your legs move, your, your hands thrash. And, and this was happening. And sure enough, that was confirmed. Yes, REM sleep disorder was there. And then they did something called a DAC scan. And the DAC scan is like an MRI, except with a dye injected. And it's a very expensive test, and most hospitals don't have the equipment for it. Columbia Presbyterian did. We were very lucky, and we were lucky that insurance picked it up because it's a monstrously expensive test, which is why they don't do it so often. And that also confirmed that alpha-synucleans, which are the Lewy bodies, were present in his brain. And so it was then decreed that this was Lewy body dementia with Parkinsonian aspects on March the 1st of 2019. Wow. So it was, so you, so you're talking two years after you officially got married that you get the actual diagnosis, Yes. you know, medically, why is LBD so difficult to diagnose? Because it mimics Alzheimer's. It mimics uh, Parkinson's, which sometimes it is also, uh, and it mimics psychiatric disorders. So the, all this mimicking, what's different about it than the others is that early on there are hallucinations, and indeed there were. So Alzheimer's doesn't have hallucinations at the beginning. And so Nikki kept the hallucinations quiet and never told you. Until he was diagnosed. And then he said to me, do you hear the voices coming out of the faucet? And I said, no, I don't, but I know you do. And then he said... Do you hear the music coming out of the pillow? No, I don't, but I know you do. So early on, this was revealed. He also was very brave when he was diagnosed because we got to the waiting room of the, the hospital and he took me in his arms and he said two things. The first was, I've always wanted to meet your father and now I'll have my opportunity, which was his way of telling me he knew he was dying. And the second comment, is one that I live by every day of my life, which is Mary Lou Falcone, we have had a great run. We cannot be sad. 
Nikki was an extraordinary individual from what I can tell through the pages of your book. And for all of our viewers out, for all of my viewers out there, can you explain the differences between Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body dementia? Yeah, basically Alzheimer's disease is taking your mind basically and it's a slow descent. And sometimes it can take years and years and years as the person slowly fades from you and never comes back. Lewy body dementia has that aspect to it, but it's like being on a roller coaster. One day you'll be 100% yourself and people will look at you and say, what are you talking about? He's perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. And the next day he'll look at you and say, who are you? And it fluctuates. It goes back and forth. So well, that's the big difference. See, for you, I mean, how important was it to protect the love that you had for each other uh, and to understand that there were days when Nikki was present and days when Louie was present? Right. You phrased it so brilliantly because the days that Nikki was present, it was Nikki all the way. And then Louie would take over. And Louis was, was, was an alter ego. Louis was not Nikki. And Louis was sometimes frustrated and angry, not really mean, but, but the anger really could take over. And violence is also part of Louis body dementia often. They will tell you to take all knives that are visible and block them away. Now, mercifully, we never had that problem, that the violence was not part of it. But everything else was. And also, Nikki had Parkinson's on top of it, so that, for instance, his hands became very weak. He couldn't, he couldn't cut his meat, things like that. We chose, we talked about it when he was diagnosed. And, and I said, Nikki, how would you feel if we told our friends and family exactly what was happening so that they could be kind and they could be gentle, and they could understand. Because as you well know, Ward, you know, people gossip. They don't mean to talk behind your back, but they do. They see things and they go, you know, what's with him? He's acting so strangely. And I thought, I don't want that for him. And I'm sure he doesn't want that. And he agreed with me. Nikki said, yes, let's tell our friends what this is. I thought that was actually very, very honorable to do that on the very onset, because you're right, people will start saying things, but they don't come out and say them uh, to you personally, but they wonder, and then, you know, unneeded gossip just starts. So just to be upfront about, especially a diagnosis like this, I thought it was an, an absolutely, well, um, a loving move to do that. And, and it's important because you, you want people to understand and not be afraid also. You know, it's fear that drives all this. People don't tell you about their dementia because they're afraid to. It's as simple as that. They're afraid of death too. And death is not horrible. There's something very beautiful in, in, and peaceful about helping somebody transition. Very much. And you, ex and you explain it. Uh, well, you actually explained it in beautiful detail in your book during that time. But I have to say, because my doctorate 
was in brain nutrition, which is why I wanted to have you on the show uh, because a lot of people do not understand or even have ever even heard of Lewy body dementia. And, and I've interviewed many in the area of dementia, but one thing I noticed is that those who are or were very creative during their lifetime, uh, it was their talent that was actually the last to go. And I saw this uh, with uh, the story of country music legend Glenn Campbell, who passed away from Alzheimer's disease. And the very last thing he lost was the ability to play, to play guitar because he was a renowned guitar player in country music, not just a singer, but he knew how to play. Now, how important did Nikki's artistic talent play in his life with LBD? Twofold. The from the from the fine art part, the drawing, the painting, whatever. He had been working on a very large painting, a five foot by a three foot painting, of a man on a Ferris wheel. This is the last two years of his life. On a man, uh, a man on a Ferris wheel, ready to jump off, commit suicide, screaming. It is. It only got to the sketched and, and uh, charcoal stage. It never got painted. And he would stare at it and he would, he would endeavor to do something and never did, backed away from it. Two years, very unusual for Nikki not to be in there doing. So for me, that represented where he was in, in hindsight, of course, not during. Um, that represented to me his struggle with screaming about the disease that he had, and he put it on canvas. I have that canvas in my office, which I, which I treasure because it was the very last thing that he touched. The music, on the other hand, was something very, very different. The last couple of weeks of his life, uh, our apartments, we have two apartments, one that we lived in, the other one I used as my office, and he had a studio on our same floor. And I was in my office, doing some work, and Nikki was almost wheelchair bound at this point. And all of a sudden, I heard the rock stuff coming from the piano next door. There could only be one person, it was Nikki. And he was so fluid, fluid with what he was doing, wailing away and, and playing and having a wonderful time with that sense memory from the past. So the lifeline, was twofold. The lifeline was the art, which kept his his emotions in a, a place that he needed to focus, and the the release of all of it through the piano. Yeah, you know, Mary Lou, it's I always tell parents, you know, get your kid uh, involved in music. Because music is the one of the very, very few things that we can learn that actually create multiple new pathways in the brain. You know, you're holding an instrument, unless you're, you know, pounding keys on a piano, you're reading music, you're listening. Um, it all, it brings in every sense of the body, but more importantly, in the brain, and if they learn early, even if the kid complains, oh, I don't want to take piano lessons, get them to do it. Because not only are their grades better in school, it lasts 
a lifetime. And in this way, for many people, it can delay an onset of, for most, possibly age-related uh, dementia. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, Lewy body dementia, uh, many of you have never heard of it, but people such as Baseball Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver had it, Dina Merrill had it, actress Estelle Getty uh, had it, and even American Top 40 host Casey Kasem uh, had LBD. Uh, and then, you know, Mary Lou, I was really surprised that it was the autopsy of actor Robin Williams that actually shed even more light on LBD, but we still don't hear about this condition. I mean, why is it so often overlooked? Why is it misdiagnosed so often? Well, it, as, as you very clearly stated, it's not rare. 1.4 million people in America have LBD, and they're finding more and more in autopsy of Alzheimer's people that LBD is also present in a very high percentage of those autopsies. So there, there's comorbidity. These, these things coexist. I think that the elusiveness of the disease is the problem and the spokespeople for it. People don't talk about it. Again, it's not rare. It's just underrated. And it really needs attention. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I mean, I'm the person who said I would never write a book because in my profession as a, as a classical music publicist, you know, I know where all the skeletons are buried, but that's not my privilege to reveal. I'm, I'm the, the keeper of the, the flame and I keep that flame livid. And that, that's what I do. But in this case, I felt I had to go out there. I had to write about Louis body. And the only way to do it through a very brilliant editor who said to me, if we don't care about you, we are never going to care about Louis body dementia. And that turned the key because I thought, okay, I can write my story. I can make you laugh and maybe make you cry at the same time. Tell my story, but get to the point, which is Louis body dementia needs advocates. There must be people out there, celebrities in particular, who are suffering from Louis body dementia. Well, you know, you, Ted Turner, for instance. You, exactly, exactly. A lot of people don't know that. Um, it, it popped into my mind as you were talking. And let's use, hypothetically, um, someone that has, that has been diagnosed as, with Alzheimer's. But maybe they live in a particular area where the doctors don't really know how to diagnose LBD. But you have a patient with Alzheimer's. And, and I know that there are patients that they do have hallucinations from time to time. And they have anger issues from time to time. Would that be a telltale sign that that person may actually have Lewy body's dementia and not Alzheimer's? In my opinion, yes. I'm not a doctor and I don't pretend to be. And the medical profession, I respect. However, I think that if you read the book, I didn't see it coming, Scenes of Love, Loss, and Lewy Body Dementia, what you'll learn is what to look for. Now, I'm not saying that if you find these things, it is absolutely Lewy body dementia. I can't say that. But you can be an informed patient and walk into your doctor and say, 
I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z. Is it possible that this is Lewy body dementia? You have to be your own advocate in well, a lot of it. Yeah, that brings me to my next question because you are a famed publicist. Now, did your skills help you communicate more effectively uh, to the doctors as well as being a caregiver to Nikki? Absolutely. I, I learned early on to keep notes. I've, I've always kept notes my whole life. The late Avery Fisher, who the, the hall was named after in, in at Lincoln Center, Avery Fisher used to say to me, you're not going to remember all these details. You think you will, but you won't. So write them down. And that had to do with business practices. I employed the same practice to when Nikki was diagnosed. I kept a log. I kept a monthly log. Basically, so I could inform all the doctors involved with the same information. That was important. Little did I know that I would ever have to go back to those notes. And when I did, I, I transcribed them and embellished them emotionally, how I was feeling in those moments as, as part of the book. And I would sit at midnight with tears streaming down my face, reliving it. But it was important to relive, both cathartically and also for those people that it might touch, it might help, it might inform. And that's the reason to do it. Well, if dementia is suspected in a loved one, are there any particular questions a spouse or a partner should ask their doctors? I think that they should quietly, not in front of the person whom uh, they suspect might have it, they should quietly ask about the possibilities. And, and articulate what's happening. If you write it down, you will remember it. So I, I highly advocate writing it all down. But ask your loved one to leave the room. I mean, I used to do that with, with Nikki if I wanted to ask something sensitive. You know, would you mind if I just had a, a few minutes? Well, because I was I was surprised. Well, not surprised. I was intrigued. Uh, when you mentioned that on Nikki's medical report, uh, about the cardiovascular issue, that his calcium levels were off the chart. And of course, the doctor missed that element on his record for, for six months. And the lab uh, missed it. I mean, wouldn't a lab flag that? Uh, yeah, exactly. And it, should have, and it should have been listed or highlighted on the report. But does did the high calcium levels have any indication or correlation to LBD? Not that I know of. Okay. What I, what I did think had a correlation is open heart surgery and anesthesia. Anesthesia is, especially in someone older, in their 70s, whatever, uh, anesthesia is not our friend. I mean, of course we need it for a major operation. But if there's something, this is, me talking now, not the doctors. Well, they wrecks havoc on the brain. I yeah, I think that it stirs things up, and if the the alpha synucleins had to be there, I mean, you know, they 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 just didn't get manufactured overnight. But I do think that the the anesthesia helped to bring it all forward. I was wondering as I was reading your book, and the reason why I bring it up is because. Um, I had a discussion with a friend of mine who is a neurochemist. And I said, what's the correlation between elevated calcium levels in the brain versus 
the presence of amyloid beta proteins found in the brains of those with Alzheimer's. And he explained to me, he said, here's how it works. 99% of the calcium in our body is definitely, we know that it's going for the bones and the teeth and, and is part of muscle contraction. He says, the problem is if somebody has elevated levels of amyloid beta proteins in the brain, which is basically the beginning or the sign of Alzheimer's, what happens with amyloid beta protein is that it opens up the neurons in the brain, but calcium follows a very, very uh, fine line, almost like a tightrope along the nervous system. And what happens with the levels are elevated and in the presence of amyloid beta, the neurons open themselves up and they take in too much calcium, which then kills the neuron. So then you have the onset of dementia that continues because of the elevated calcium levels, which is why they need to start implementing uh, calcium binding proteins into the brain, which will actually regulate the calcium into the neuron and can actually reduce brain cell death, uh, according to research, by as much as 50%. That's um, fascinating. I've, I've not heard that before. And, and so when I read your book, I was like, wait a minute, let me back this up because you said elevated calcium, I thought. But then you brought up one of the most vital points that a lot of people need to understand. When you go under anesthesia and with open heart surgery, how, how long was his surgery? Was it a five, six four, hour ordeal? Four, five hours. About five hours. And that wrecks havoc on the brain. And I and I, I will agree with you that it probably stirred things up because after major surgery, mentally, the brain can take six months to a year to, in a way, heal itself if it's given the opportunity to do so. Yeah. And in this case, it didn't. It was, it was just a deterioration that started. And, and the, the other thing we hear a lot is, my husband was the most brilliant person in the room, the most talented, the most, the most, the most, the most. I hear it all the time. And I, I begin to wonder in the support groups that I've been part of uh, through the Louis Body Dementia Resource Center, which is a magnificent organization, which is hands-on help. And they were my lifeline. And their founder, Norma Loeb, is an angel on earth, in my opinion. And uh, without her, I couldn't have made it. And it, it, in those meetings, it's just so interesting to me to hear everybody articulate that same phrase that I just said, the most wonderful, the most talented, the smartest, you know, all the ESTs. And I, I've often wondered, and I, I don't know whether this is just the group that I was part of or whether this is a factor that people who have quite uh, a magnificent brain power are more effective. I don't know. That is an interesting uh, analogy um, because even the people that I mentioned that you had mentioned in your book that had passed with uh, Louis body dementia, it's something All that needs to, be, needs to be researched. And there was a section towards the end of the book that really opened up my eyes and ladies and gentlemen, you, you need to hear this. And I'm going to let you Mary Lou explain this, uh, that LBD has another problem. Um, and of course you said there are millions of people, uh, possibly around the world that actually suffer from it. 
don't know it. The doctors have not diagnosed it as such, but all the signs are there. But medications have to be properly given um, because if, like, and like you said in your book, and I was really shocked to read this, that if someone's rushed to the ER uh, and given the wrong medication, uh, it can be fatal. Uh, and for you, you learned that when hospice came in, that morphine and Haldol are commonly used to ease any discomfort, but it was the Haldol that's dangerous to those with LBD. Um, did you have a list of drugs that Nikki should avoid and to let the doctors know since many people are not aware of certain medications that can harm an LBD patient? I am not an expert on medications, but, but I do know about Haldol. And Haldol is a very inexpensive antipsychotic. And so you go into to the ER with, with a medical issue, usually it's, it's grave ag agitation and, and they want to calm you down. And the first thing they're going to give you is Haldol. Again, it's inexpensive and, and it's the, the drug of choice for ER. I advise people who have the misfortune of having to go to the ER to not say my husband or my, my loved one has Lewy body dementia because they're not going to know what you're talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, um, the average uh, ER nurse won't even know what Lewy body dementia is. And you would hope the doctors would, but so often it's not the case. So I advise people to say, my husband is allergic to Haldol because if you say you're allergic, they won't dare give it to you. And that's the way you get around it. I know it's a little bit disingenuous. It's a little but bit- But it's excellent. Advice. Well, it's excellent advice because, and you're right. The moment you say that someone is allergic to a particular type of drug, um, they treat it like the plague and they don't even let it get near that patient and they're marking that chart immediately. But uh, when it comes to doctors and medical professions and ER, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. That's right. And you need to protect yourself. But even so, Haldol is the enemy. I mean, that stay away from it with Lewy body dementia. I don't know about the other uh, dementias, but, but definitely with Lewy body, no Haldol. Well, so, what and where um, are the best resources for caregivers or those who want to understand more about Lewy body uh, dementia? Where can they go? They can go to the website of the Lewy Body Dementia Resource Center, which is lbdny.org. And it's a fabulous website. I mean, it's got all kinds of information. And, and places to go and doctors in all 50 states. And it's, it's quite a remarkable um, website. Also, there's a helpline on it, which is 365 days a year, that helpline is operating. And, it's, and very often Norma Lowe herself will pick it up. When I called, um, the actor David Hyde Pierce told me about Caring Kind, and Caring Kind, which is an Alzheimer's organization primarily, told me about the Lewy Body Dementia Resource Center. And when I when I picked up the phone and called, Norma herself answered. And I thought, oh my goodness, but she's a hands-on lady. I mean, her, her mom had it for, I think it was 18 years. So she knows everything there is to know. And she's also very good in the area of, of the drug situation, which we try very 
uh, hard and carefully not to, to comment too much on drugs, but because you don't know what they're going to do. I was going to say before that um, Nikki, when he was very toward the end, uh, they felt that he needed Seroquel. And this was our very responsible doctor. And Seroquel was supposed to take the anxiety down and calm him down. It did just the opposite. It made him frantic. And it didn't go back. We had to wean him off of it over days. I mean, I noticed it within two days that this was horrible. And then we had to wean him off of it. And it, he still didn't go back. It, it was in his chemistry. Who knew? It should do one thing. I said to the pharmacist, Did you, have you ever seen this before? No, we've never seen this. Well, guess what? You've seen it now. Well, you stressed very much in your book, which I really appreciated the fact that anyone that is truly diagnosed with Lewy body dementia, every case is absolutely different. That you, if if a if you have a loved one that has it, um, it does it does it's not going to be they're not going to be the same uh, as someone else who actually has it because, like you said, some have it with the, the Parkinson's element. Some right. don't. And every case is literally different from one another, more so than Alzheimer's. Oh, yes. Yeah, Alzheimer's has a pretty steady pathway that everybody follows more or less. The, the timelines perhaps are the only differential in that. Lewy body, if you've seen one case of Lewy body dementia, you've seen one case of Lewy body dementia. It's, it's not a one size fits all, which is what makes it so, so difficult. But there, there are factors within, within it that are earmarks that kind of are the red flags that you have to take a look at. Yeah, and ladies and gentlemen, uh, what we're gonna do uh, after this interview is we're gonna give you all of the links as well as the phone numbers and helplines to Louis Body Resource uh, Resource Center, uh, and there's I understand there's also one that you had in your book called Caring Kind, uh, CaringKindNYC.org. Who are they? Caring Kind is a phenomenal organization. They're the ones I went to first. They are primarily about Alzheimer's, but they do they're expanding. They're dealing with all kinds of dementia, and they gave free classes. And I went, you know, I couldn't get any answers. I, I, I tried, and I tried with the neurologist. And while he was a brilliant diagnostician, and I take nothing away from that except gratitude. But I asked him every way I knew how, including asking Nikki to leave the room, what can I expect? What will this look like? What will be the deterioration cycles? You know, where will I see beginning, middle, and end stages. He would not answer me. Silence. He didn't offer me a social worker. He offered me nothing. And all he said was, and this was prophetic and he was right, you will learn more from people who have had the disease than you will from anybody else. Now, he was right, but you know, couldn't he, and, and interesting in this case, I, I won't name who he was, but but he, uh, a friend of ours, had died of Lewy body several years before our diagnosis. And when I told his widow who our doctor was, she went, 
oh, you're so lucky. He's so wonderful. He, he led me every inch of the way. He told me so much. I said, are we talking about the same person? <laughs> Something had happened between the time they had had him and we had him. And my suspicion, and this is just my suspicion, is that it was some kind of a legal situation. That would to... that would make sense. Doesn't and, it? you know, um, ladies and gentlemen, you know, many of you know that I that I have uh, health experts on this show. But more importantly, to truly get the point across is those that truly have lived certain types of conditions. And Mary Lou's book is not only her story and Nikki's story, uh, but if you have a loved one suffering from Lewy body dementia, or maybe you suspect, this is a book that will help you in more ways than you could ever imagine. I mean, in her memoir of love, loss, and Louis body dementia, Mary Lou Falcone takes you on a cathartic journey of caregiving that is filled, as I said before, hope, laughter, and tears. And again, there's another story within all of that that stops along the way with music, romance, I should say romances, but you'll have to read the book to find that out. And of course, there's many surprises there, but it's written to inspire you, to give you hope. And Mary Lou unflinchingly shares in detail her late husband's struggle with LBD. And when I say detail, I mean absolute detail. Providing the inform informative, compassionate, inspiring insights into this form of dementia. Uh, she And as she emerges, emerges transformed and energized, so will every one of you who read I Didn't See It Coming. Scenes of Love, Loss, and Louis Body Dementia. Uh, Mary Lou, I want to thank you so much for not only writing this book, but honoring us with your time and your presence today and very, very important information about Louis Body Dementia. I mean, many blessings to you. Lord, thank you for this magnificent opportunity. It, it means a great deal. Well, you know, Mary Lou, there's an old saying, our test becomes our testimony, and your test started at the age of 10, but you live, you have lived and still live a, a storied life. Uh, I, have, I have to say I love publicists, because <laughs> I, I, I deal with so many of them. Uh, I think I could literally write a book on the subject on being on this side of, of things, but uh, that's for another time. And like you said, sometimes we just have to keep some of those stories uh, quiet uh, to protect the innocent. But uh, again, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I agree there. And uh, but again, Mary Lou, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to write this book, because for those who don't know about Louis body dementia, ladies and gentlemen, it's literally second to Alzheimer's, but millions of people still don't know what it is or even heard of it. But 
you, Mary Lou, are bringing this to light, and hopefully it sheds more and more light upon this condition where more and more research will be done, and hopefully something positive will be done for those who have, well, been diagnosed with, with this condition. That's the hope. I mean, that's why I wrote this. Awareness, awareness, awareness. With awareness will come the dollars. With the dollars will come the research. With the research will come the cure. And, and we will find a cure. I am going to stand in agreement with you there because uh, within the pages of your book, the pages of your life, I see the connections of the divine moments that were placed together. And ladies and gentlemen, you will see those as well. And again, I encourage you, pick up a copy of Mary Lou's book, I Didn't See It Coming, Scenes of Love, Loss, and Louis Body Dementia. Again, Mary Lou, I want to thank you again for being on the show. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're now we're going to give you all of the resource information um, right after this interview. So write it down, copy it, search their websites, even call their phone numbers for more information. So as for me, as for Mary Lou, and ladies and gentlemen, I'll see you next time.